If I have this up here, I'll be fine. If I don't, I'll start coughing and won't be able to stop. So uh, you might not know that this is called Low Sunday in the church uh, because it's the Sunday after Easter and typically is one of the lowest attended. So look at you. Look at you, I love it. Okay, so um, we are gonna do a series now following Easter of meeting the risen Christ. We've been, we've been focusing on your mission, which is to follow in the way of Jesus. So we've, uh, we did a series on meeting Jesus, encounters with Jesus in the New Testament. Then we did learning from Jesus, the parables, and now we're talking about meeting the risen Christ. Here's what we know about the gospel story, that the, there were people who experienced the living presence of Christ following the crucifixion. Um, now, you, the, we're going a little bit out of order. I gave my colleagues, who will be uh, preaching in a few weeks, first choice, and uh, they took the upper room and uh, Thomas, so we're starting a week later uh, in uh, people meeting the risen Christ in the New Testament. But one of the things we're also going to do is give you a chance to hear from people in this community who have had an experience of the presence of Christ. One of the things we know from all kinds of statistics is that a lot of people who go or involved in faith communities will say that they have had some kind of experience of the holy, an experience, an encounter with Christ, or they might use different words. Lots of people, but very few of them ever tell anyone. Very few of them actually talk about it in their faith community, and that's one of the things that I think Kairos really values. So um, before we move into uh, the story from the New Testament where people meet the risen Christ, Ben Merrill is going to come forward and just talk a little bit about his encounter with the living presence of Christ.
Ben, thank you so much. Um, you know, one of the things that I hope that we can uh, learn together as we hear these stories is that Christ's presence feels different to different people, um, but that we might see some common threads and that thread of just acceptance um, and love and belonging and it's okay and all of those uh, kind of a negation of those things that get so baked into us. My worth is absolutely determined by what I do. Like that is so deeply embedded in us. 
uh, that it, it sometimes takes more than just one experience uh, to, to help us live in a different way. So thank you so much, Ben, for sharing your story. Let us pray. Gracious and risen Christ, come meet us here today in our gathering, in our scripture, in the proclamation of your word and the testimonies. Open our eyes to see you here among us. Open our hands to receive your abundant grace. Open our hearts to love you, to follow you, and to feed your children. Amen. So our reading uh, today, as I said, is uh, from John 21. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee, and it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two other disciples that were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. This is a theme. People don't recognize Christ is in their midst. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the num large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, by the way, that's, the, that's John. Talk about, is the Bible a human document? Um, yeah, um, right. So I'm pretty sure Jesus loved them all, but John happens to say, you know, I'm the one. Um, then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was so full of large fish, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time, Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. <laughs> 
In the summer of 1997, my son here, who maybe you'll meet at the end, who's kind of big, was this big. Uh, Ty was eight. Yeah, thank you for the math. <laughs> He's telling me eight. Ty was eight, my younger son was five, and I was uh, in Princeton at seminary, and I was taking summer Hebrew, and I needed someone to help me with the kids. My class started at 8 o'clock. I had to leave at 7.30. We had class, then we took a break, then we had class again, then we had a study group. I didn't get home till 1.30, so I needed somebody there from 7.30 to 1.30. So I have a sister 10 years younger than me, single. She happened to be able to get some time off, so she came to take care of my children. And uh, I think she thought it was going to be really fun. And uh, so after about four days into it, she comes to me with great earnestness and says, I, I don't know if I'm doing this right. I said, what do you mean? She goes, well, I mean, you leave. And then, uh, you know, a little bit later, they wake up and I, I have to fix breakfast and then feed them breakfast and then clean up breakfast. And then after that, um, you know, I help them get dressed and ready for the day, and then I have to get dressed and ready for the day, and then I look at the clock, and it's time to think about what to have for lunch, and then I have to fix lunch, and then I have to feed them lunch, and then I have to clean up lunch, and then you come home. All I do is feed them. And I laughed. Yeah, you got it, Carolyn. Meeting the primal needs of our children. That's it. One of my most tender memories of all time, makes me choked up to think about it, was a decade later. I drove up to Richmond, and my carefree, crazy sister who didn't know what she was doing that summer uh, was having her first child baptized, and I was going to baptize him. And the night before, Saturday evening, I tiptoed upstairs and I could hear Carolyn in the room with little Jake feeding him. Jakey, you're getting baptized tomorrow. We love you. And then Carolyn heard me and she looked up and she said, hey, I've been thinking now tomorrow the service is at 11, but Jake usually eats then, so I'll have to, and on she went, and this, I had a flashback to the summer of 97. Here was my sister strategizing the feeding of her firstborn. And we know, don't we, that children don't just need to be fed food, they need to be touched and loved, and they need that, that extra uh, connection. I mean, Lots of studies, famous ones in 1915, where they studied children all around the, the institutions, ch children who were in institutions around this country, infants who were fed regularly but not affectionately touched, failed to thrive. Dr. Sue Johnson is one of my, my favorite people I'm reading and listening to now. She says, look, you know, the, the, the need for human connection for a deep and profound bond with other humans is not a sign of weakness. It is a sign of our humanity. Feeding our children. It's a primal act of love and care, and that's 
what I love about this passage. So the very last, read the Gospel of John this week, or at least the last two chapters. So John chapter 20 ends like this, basically like, hey, this is, these are some of the stories of Jesus. Uh, I could tell you more, it would fill up all the books in the world, but I'm telling you this so you can believe and have life. The end. Doesn't that sound like the end of the story? And then there's this kind of epilogue, this P.S., and we get chapter 21, where John is saying, hey, I gotta tell you one more story. I gotta tell you one more thing, because in this story is the very heart of what it means to follow in the way of Jesus. Here it is. The guys are out fishing, and Jesus is doing what? Cooking breakfast. I mean, meditate on that this week. Of all the things the risen Lord could have been doing, could have been preparing a lesson, could have been writing down the list of things, hey guys, come here, because you know, you need to believe this, this, and this, or you're not in the club. He's cooking breakfast. Come and eat, he says. Come and eat. And he feeds them, not only physically, but around the fire. He feeds them with conversation that nourishes and strengthens their soul. Feed my sheep. Take care of my sheep. And this is so cool because John has this habit of like, Jesus teaches something, and he embodies it at the same time. Remember, hey, I'm giving you an example, and he washes their feet, serve each other. And here he's, he's feeding them, and he's having these meaningful conversations. He's feeding them food that their body can metabolize into biological life, and he is feeding them with a conversation that their souls can metabolize into convictions for living. That's what this story embodies. Meeting the risen Christ is, is the heart, it's like this picture of what discipleship is. Come around, gather around, receive, because we're all hungry, we all need it, all of us need to be fed, level playing field, we're fed, we receive, we share, and then he says, now go feed all my children, and they don't just need food. They need to be treated with dignity and respect. They need acceptance. They need love. They need belonging. They need shelter. Feed my sheep. Take care of my children. It's no secret that eating together is part of the foundation of a community's life. Years ago, I learned about a little town, a little village in Mexico, Milpa Alta, or Milpa, well, I don't know if I'm saying it right. Statistically, it's the poorest borough in Mexico City, but those born and raised there, this is from a, an article in National Geographic, question the statistic. What is poverty, they ask, when everyone can count on a meal as well as other forms of support? What is poverty when the town hosts a giddy 
number of feasts every year. People say, we are better off here, and very few people leave this little village. Their biggest feast is the La Regenta, which translates as the Roundup. 20,000 men, women, and children walk through the mountainous region to an ancient place where there's a holy cave. They make 60,000 tamales together. They all work together. 5,000 gallons of hot chocolate made from scratch. And one of the greatest honors of the town is to be chosen by a special council to be the major domas, the chief stewards. The chief stewards have already been named well into the, like 2047. People wait for a decade for this honor. They work hard and they insist it's a labor of love. One of the uh, major domos said it this way, what I love most is the sobra mesa, a stretch of time after the meals when everyone, no excuses, stays at the table. Hey guys, stick around the fire, we're gonna talk. Do you love me? Everyone stays at the table and talks, laughter, confession, testimony of pilgrimages. They know that the table is where the history of Milpa Alta is passed on. And at the table, when we gather the history of our faith is passed. Where values are consumed, where stories get metabolized, where profound bonds are formed, where we meet the risen Christ. It's the sobra mesa that nourishes and strengthens as much as the dinner. This is what Jesus knows, and it's what maybe he's trying to teach the disciples during that sobra mesa around the charcoal fire so long ago that the heart of discipleship is to receive, share, feed, to love God and take care of his children's primal needs. I wonder what it might be like if those of us who are seeking to follow Jesus now did so in that way, coming humbly to be fed, and leaving to be major domas for Christ. Amen.